0: This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. There are a couple of topics that I want to bring up. And the first one, I'll just lay right out there. This uh, young woman who went to Syria to marry an ISIS fighter. Her father is a naturalized U.S. citizen. He's a former diplomat for Yemen. And she is a U.S. citizen. She was born in the United States. She's now 24 years old. She's got an 18 month old son. And she and her son would like to come back to the United States. And she is saying right up front, she accepts that she will be charged with providing material support to terrorism. She realizes that that might mean that she's going to spend a lot of years in prison, and she is willing to do that. She also says that she was brainwashed and in going into Syria and partly motivated by quote youthful arrogance, and she has said that she wants to come back to America to help deradicalize other Americans. And Donald Trump has said no. He has instructed Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, to say that this woman no longer is a U.S. citizen, even though she was born here, even though her father is a naturalized U.S. citizen, that she's no longer a citizen, and that, you know, case closed. And this is that, you know, kind of brutal justice on the one hand. On the other hand, we don't know that she did anything other than marry fighters. She married two fighters, they both died. Maybe she married a third. She married guys who were isis fighters but whether she was doing anything you know probably not but we don't know but she did you know go to a foreign country isis had proclaimed itself a country and they had a physical land this isn't like al-qaeda and you know embraced what they were up to apparently so i was looking doing some research this morning about you know what is it that can cause you to lose your citizenship because you know do trump and pompeo have a legal basis here and it turns out that there are basically seven things that you can do to cause yourself to lose citizenship you can become a naturalized citizen of another country these all are after age 18 right these are all as adults become a naturalized citizen of another country you can lose your citizenship formally declare allegiance to a foreign government lose your citizenship accept a position in a foreign country that requires you to declare allegiance to that country Lose your citizenship. Join the military force of another country that is engaged in hostilities against the U.S. Lose your citizenship. Formally renounce your U.S. nationality abroad in front of a U.S. diplomat or a consular officer. You can formally renounce your U.S. nationality in the U.S. when the U.S. is at war in writing and with the approval of the Justice Department and lose your citizenship. And lose your citizenship if you've been convicted of treason or attempting to overthrow the U.S. government which raises a couple of interesting questions. But let me give you the caveat to these. The first is that the act, for those seven things, if you do any one of those seven things, it must be done with the specific intent to relinquish your U.S. citizenship. And as far as I can tell, and of course, this story, there's a long way to go in this story. This is very early on. But... I have not seen anything or heard anything from her that would indicate that she intended to renounce her U.S. citizenship. It was just, you know, hey, you know, she fell in love with this guy online and flew to Syria to marry him and thought ISIS was cool. She got brainwashed, she says. So number one. And number two, and this is particularly fascinating, this is over at nolo.com legal Encyclopedia. It is not enough to appear to commit the act, even voluntarily, to lose your U.S. nationality. The person must also commit the act in order to relinquish their nationality. So it's not enough to just join a foreign fighting force and fight against the United States to lose your nationality. You have to do that in order to lose your nationality. It has to be your intention. And, you know, I just find this fascinating. This says to me, if you know, assuming that all of the legality, the legal stuff, I've, I've gone through four or five different legal websites this morning looking this up. Eamon Kasu's uh, summary seems to be the tightest. But they all say basically the same thing. And I don't see any evidence that Hoda Muthana actually did this with the intention of renouncing her U.S. citizenship. And now she is trying to claim her U.S. citizenship. So my question to you, should she be allowed back into the United States? And should she be allowed to retain her U.S. citizenship? But I think that the second question that all of this raises, since Trump is so quick to strip this woman of her citizenship, is that, you know, he's saying that she engaged in at least a couple of those seven things that I read to you. Now, the law says you have to do it with the intention of renouncing your citizenship. And I've seen no evidence that she did that. But if Trump and Pompeo, who is our secretary of state, if they're going to change the rules, and frankly, I don't think they can, but if they're going to change the rules to say all you have to do is one of these seven things, and one of those seven things is participating in an attempt to overthrow the U.S. government, then why is Tim McVeigh still a U.S. citizen? why are they not doing citizenship proceedings against the guy who was arrested at the Coast Guard base in Washington, D.C., who was putting together, you know, an arsenal to try to start a civil war? I mean, how is that not an attempt to overthrow the U.S. government? Tim McVeigh thought he was going to start a civil war, a racially based civil war. So if we're adopting Trump's new strategy of saying, well, you know, if you did one of these seven things, if you Attempt to overthrow the U.S. government. But if you're doing any of these things, you're no longer a citizen. How far do we take this? Where does this all go? So anyhow, I've got a couple of questions that I want to toss out to you today. Boy, this story, I just want to recap it very quickly. This mother came to the United States from Guatemala, where she had been raped by a member of the Guatemalan military that was, quote, protecting the town she lived in. She was one of a number of women in this town who who were routinely being raped by these soldiers. She fled to the United States with her three-year-old child, her daughter, She reached the U.S. border and went to an official border entry point, a legal crossing point, as our law specifies a person is supposed to do if they're seeking asylum, and as international law says, but U.S. law says this. She applied for asylum there. Her application was accepted, and then they took her child away from her, and for eight and a half weeks refused to tell her where her daughter was. She later learned that her daughter had been taken to a place called the Hacienda del Sol. It was shut down because the staffers were routinely engaging in child abuse, actually abusing the children. During that period of time, about eight weeks into this, she was allowed a phone call with her daughter. She literally every day, she had been begging, where is my daughter? And finally, after eight weeks, they gave her a phone call. And when her daughter started crying, two minutes into the call, The social worker cut the line. That was it. Two weeks later, she was reunited with her daughter through the efforts of some good lawyers and, you know, her asylum claim is being processed. This was all done illegally, essentially, by the Trump administration, you know, tearing children from their parents. That's not part of the law. Before Trump, the only time in history that that has ever been done is when, for example, during the Obama administration, when they thought that the person who was representing themselves as a parent was not actually the parent, that they might be trafficking the child or that they were explicitly abusive. This little girl now, when she's asked questions, gives one word answers. She's afraid to go outside. She cannot go outside with her mother. She starts screaming and shrieking. She cannot fall asleep unless her mother is holding her, not just in the same room, holding her. The minute, Mom, let's go, this little girl wakes up and starts screaming, this is what your tax dollars are paying for. This is what Donald Trump is so proud of. On the line with us is Julio Rivera, the editorial director at Reactionary Times, columnist at Newsmax, American thinker, and townhall.com, ReactionaryTimes.com, his Twitter handle. Oh, yeah, it's Julio. Julio, welcome back to the program.
4: Thank you so much for having
0: me, Tom. So... In my opinion, Donald Trump and Mike Pence, and perhaps Kristen Nielsen, the head of DHS, should be arrested and prosecuted for kidnapping and child abuse. <laughs> what say you? Okay,
4: uh, first off, um, to this little narrative framing that you're doing, Tom, trying to make it seem like this is a this new is one phenomenon. of probably 3,000
0: stories, back, Julio. This goes
4: back to every president, vice president, and the administration from Bill Clinton in 1997 on.
0: No, No, Julio, Julio, I'm sorry. I can't let you just lie on the air like that. Julio, that is not true. Look it up. the Florida consent decree, which went ahead and allowed for I think you have
4: listen I'm not going to deny the that only reason we're not legally blind, the children could be separated blind. from their
0: parents was if there was a suspicion of abuse or human trafficking Donald Trump changed that and John Kelly went on national television and said the reason we're changing this policy the reason we're tormenting these children is to discourage parents from showing up at our border with kids Well you know what that's not the worst
4: idea in the world. I mean, and I'm not saying that we should be holding the kids accountable and punish the children. That's an unfortunate byproduct of a broken system. This is not you a broken know, system. Right now, this is a
0: crime.
4: No, what we need to do, and this speaks to the larger problem, we need to build that wall. We need to enforce our immigration laws domestically. This, um, this know, is so not about
0: just, immigration. This is about refugee is. status. At the end
4: of the day, you're, listen, you, you're pointing out you know, one story, and it is an unfortunate story, but when you have thousands, literally thousands of children, there's no way that you know, we don't have the infrastructure to support bringing
0: in all these... That's elites. why you leave them Things with their parents, Julio. Relax,
4: unfortunately.
0: That's why you leave them with their parents. It I mean, you've got children's prisons now that are being built. Because it's not our problem, Tom. That's
4: what you fail to see. You know, if we didn't have our open border policies and sanctuary cities and all these things, we are sanctioning the people who hire these people and create opportunities for them, paying them under the table. And if we, we hit them so hard that they would have no economic opportunity, they wouldn't come here. And guess what, Tom? Then it wouldn't be our
0: problem. That's an immigration argument. And thank you for echoing my point. But this I'm not talking about immigration here. We have had negative immigration from the United States over the last 10 years with regard to Mexico. Actually, the majority of people who are overstaying their visas, who are coming into this country legally and ending up being here illegally and in many cases working are Canadians. The majority, not Mexicans. Canadians. Mexicans have been leaving this country um, and going back to Mexico. But what this is, well, let me just finish this sentence and then you can react. What this is, is refugees. Ronald Reagan committed treason by conspiring with Iran to sell them weapons in exchange for their holding hostages to make Jimmy Carter look like a fool to win an election. After that happened, he took that money and he used it to buy weapons to support right-wing governments down in Central America, in Guatemala, Honduras in El Salvador. Elliot Abrams was right in the middle of this, this war criminal Elliot Abrams, who Bob Barr, the guy that was just made Attorney General, recommended George Herbert Walker Bush pardon, which he did. And that ruined those countries. Those countries are absolute messes now because of U.S. policy, and their people are coming here as refugees. Well, listen, Tom, that's another debate, but the whole thing as
4: far as refugees seeking asylum, There's a lot of people that are coming in right now making that claim that are not truly refugees. So we have to really take a deep look into each one of their cases. I agree. That's why we need need more judges. That's why we need more officers
0: investigating these situations. You know, there should be due process. If somebody comes you know, with their child and says, I'm a refugee, the police were raping me, my, or my child was threatened, or, then yeah. there should be due process. Trump has dialed back on that. He has not spent the billion dollars that Congress appropriated two years ago for this kind of thing. He has not spent that money. He has dialed back on that, and instead he's saying he wants his trophy wall
4: it's not a trophy wall the wall would prevent all these
0: problems going forward this and woman did not is, did not illegally the the cross the border is, julio she presented herself at a port of entry in arizona mm-hmm. that's fine you're using this one case but this the is vast majority of these children who have been separated came to legal ports of entry i understand but not all of them the bigger problem is
4: that right now we have to go ahead and say and you're right listen these refugee cases Yes, we need more judges We need more people looking at these. There's some people that have suffered some horrific atrocities at the hands of some shady government and, you know, illegal, you know, crime, organized crime figures within their country. And it's horrible. The human trafficking, all of it has to end. But the best path to do that is to go ahead and say, you know, put up that wall and say, listen, America is closed. For right now, it's closed. And if you come into a legal port of entry, yes, then we'll go ahead and review your asylum application and steal and your child. If you you'll get it. But, and steal but your child. We have too much. We have too much. And going steal up,
0: your right? child. What was that? And steal your child. Not steal your child. If we, if we. So you're agreeing closed, with me that Donald Trump and Mike Pence should be in jail for child abuse children. and kidnapping. And we hold
4: the children for no longer than 20 days, which we have the legal right. To keep the parents separated from the children for up to 20 days, I believe, under the Florida's consent decree while these things are going on. That was um,
0: only in cases where you suspect child trafficking, Julio, number one. And number two, even one day of separation for a three year old can destroy the rest of their lives. Um, well, that's debatable, but yes, it is horrible. It's horrible. But
4: I don't think that you can put that on the Trump administration. The way that you're trying to frame this is that, oh, we're going to.
0: John put Kelly Trump came out Trump and bragged about no. this. Kristen Nielsen testified to before Congress. This is a deterrence policy. This is a brand new thing in the history of the United States. We are going to tear families apart and put children in children's prisons where they're not allowed to be touched. Their parents can't talk to them. They're you know, at, I have a question for you, Tom.
4: When this caravan was coming up, and let, and let me finish this before you cut me off. When this caravan was coming up, and a lot of people were saying that they wanted asylum from whatever Central American country that were coming from. Mexico offered them asylum, and
0: they didn't take it. So at the end of the day, it's, uh, some of the personal responsibility has to fall on the parents as well. About three quarters of the people who came up in the last so-called caravan, this group of a little over a thousand people who came up through Mexico that Donald Trump was, was hysterical about. Just, people, okay, uh, let's 2, 000, just like okay, let's say it was 2,000, just before the election. Okay, let's say it was 10,000. Mm -hmm. More than 70% of them stayed in Mexico. They have not come to the U.S. border. Mm -hmm.
4: well they should have all stayed in mexico
0: well you know i mean that day may come but but this is a mess that we created that war criminal elliot abrams and the war criminals uh, ronald reagan and george bush (laughs) senior put this thing together and now (laughs) you've got mike pence and donald trump and i think these guys should be arrested for kidnapping and child abuse government's doing in south america right now how's venezuela working out for you how's
4: democratic socialism working Julio, i am not a venezuelan
0: i'm an american and i'm concerned about what is being done in my country and i'm concerned about the fact that mike pence and donald trump are engaging in kidnapping and child abuse and proud of it and they've got people defending them for that
4: listen there's going to be unfortunate cases like the the, the, the case that you keep referencing that's, like, I'm sure that that's, like, the needle in the haystack. That's that's, that's not the majority across the board. Of so you think the vast majority tables. of
0: children who are torn apart from their parents for months at a time we are just just fine with it?
4: We have to make sure that these kids are not being in, trafficked in for child abuse, for sexual abuse, for all the horrible things, the atrocities that these poor people face. We have to make sure that, at the very least, the one thing we can guarantee them while they were in U.S. custody was that that child was not being raped.
0: Well, no, we can't guarantee them that because that's why they shut down the center where this woman's child was taken because they were abusing the children. They (laughs) were not
4: abusing the
0: children. They absolutely were. It was shut down. Look it up. It's called Hacienda del Sol in in Arizona. You can Google it. Anyhow, Julio Rivera, reactionarytimes.com, his his, uh, Twitter handle, oh yeah, it's Julio. Hang on just a second, Julio. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Julio, thanks for coming on and talking with me. I appreciate it.
4: I always love coming on. Have a great day, Tom.
0: Thanks, you too, Julio. Bye bye. Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold ask for their free gold protection guide, and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call one own gold that's one 888 Alex in Edison, New Jersey. Hey, Alex, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching us on YouTube. Hi, Tom it's immigration so one word that's not in the debate
5: or phrase permanent damage
0: that is what we're doing to these children yes and i and i would argue to their parents as well although the children are much more vulnerable
5: but there's a big picture aspect too. how you know when our trade negotiators talk to china or better yet europe this stuff comes into play our reputation is being hurt. And I don't know what's worse. I mean, there's different, it's hard to measure one or the other to to compare, but I don't really care to, you know, this impacts my patriotism, knowing that my tax dollars go to inflict permanent damage. The government has psychologists, they know that, but they don't care. Well, at least one party. Anyway, that's your comments, and I'll take it off. Sure. For you. Thank yeah.
0: You. Alex, thank you very much. I, I get how heartfelt you you, know, you are about this, and I, you know, I share it. And in terms of patriotism, and in terms of our ability to negotiate with other people, this, I believe, is one of the major reasons why when Mike Pence was in Europe, and he said, I bring you greetings from President Donald Trump, and then he waited for the applause, literally not one person clapped. And Ivanka Trump was in the audience. She didn't even clap. Although I think that's because she was shocked. Angel in San Gabriel, California. What's up, Angel?
4: Hey, Tom, good morning. I have two comments to make. One is the immigration problem. It's easy to fix. This is our president. I don't think uh,
3: he really wants to do it.
4: The first thing you have to do is, the good people who are not criminals, they should get a work permit. Otherwise, uh, if he deport everybody, the whole yep. country is going to collapse. Now,
3: After that you need to uh, find the companies who hire the people with no papers the first time, the second time, put them out of business. I agree. Then when we need more visas Send, send more visas to all the countries so people come to work legally. That's
4: the thing. Yeah, Trump yeah. had hired, Trump, Trump had you like 15
0: people working for him in Bedminster, at his golf club, for in some cases as much as 18 years, knowing that they were not in this country legally. And Trump is the guy who is, you know, screaming about this stuff. If you want to start putting rich, white employers who are hiring people undocumented in this country, and again, that's a separate issue from asylum seekers, but if you want to do that, let's start by putting either Donald Trump or the people who made the decisions, probably his son or his daughter or somebody or whoever's running his golf club, put them in jail. Amen. J- uh, Angel, thank you for the call. Lee in uh, Beverly Hills, listening on KPFK. Hey, Lee, what's up?
2: Oh, hello. On the wall, I have noticed that Trump positively adores dictators, and that is obviously because he is one of them, the dictator-in-chief who has to be occupying the White House. Yep. And it is dreadfully unfortunate. But in the United States of America, I don't think he would be able to get away with building one of those humongous statues, such as in North Korea and throughout many other parts of the world in the previous Soviet Union, and therefore, it appears to me, his substitute is this wall with plaques of him and his name all over it. Mm -hmm. I think that is his substitute for the adulation that he absolutely wants from his followers, and he seems to be almost... Psychotically addicted to getting people to have undying, unflinching, unconscious loyalty to him. Yeah. And if they do not, then he plays his reality TV show. And fires them. You're fired.
0: And just and destroy and then and then tries to destroy them and their families and and everybody around them. Uh, Lee, what you just said was profound, and it gave me this huge aha that you know yes, you know uh, Stalin had statues to Stalin all over the country. Mao had statues to Mao all over the country. Kim Jong Un has statues to Kim all over the country. And Trump can't quite do that here in the United States. I mean, that's what the Reagan Reagan Legacy Project did: build a statue to Ronald Reagan in every single congressional district in the united states but that was after reagan you know was no longer president and reagan didn't do that the billionaires who funded him did that so trump can't build statues to himself and he can't wait in fact he may not live long enough to see the statues just like ronald reagan didn't live long enough to see all the statues being built to himself so the statue he's that he's trying to build to himself right now is this wall that is profound lee thank you so much for that thanks for the call and thanks for your kind words thank you for listening to kpfk And welcome back. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world. Today's report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com. And Loving What You Do, the new book by Ellen Ratner. And on the line with us is the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News, joining us from U.N. headquarters in New York City, Luke Vargas. You can hear Luke present One World News Story in two minutes every day by searching Luke Vargas, wherever you get your podcast. So, Luke, Venezuela, I saw in the news just before I went on the air that Maduro government had actually opened fire on people on the, uh, I believe it was the Brazilian-Venezuelan border, and killed somebody. What's going on down there? Well, let's just bear in
5: mind, Venezuela has, I believe, close to a thousand miles of borders, and all of them are sort of, you might see infiltration by activists or others who are trying to move aid in, either today or over the next twenty four hours or so. I mean tomorrow is the the day that the Venezuelan opposition has said they are going to order foreign aid to be allowed to come in through any of the border crossings. The Maduro government is saying absolutely not. As of I guess it was five PM last night, they closed down borders with Brazil, the crossings, and the clash that we were just mentioning occurred this morning. Either one or two people are dead. We're getting a little conflicting reports, but there is a a indigenous tribe called the Pemon, which are in this area of, of sort of the upper Amazon, and they had apparently reached a deal with Guaido, the opposition leader in Venezuela, to help, you know, knowing knowledge of, of the area very well, to allow, you know, to sort of smuggle aid in on behalf of the opposition. We had been sort of preparing to see some sort of clash in this respect on rivers. I mean, this is is kind of how crazy and and big this story is. Mm. You know, they had an indigenous tribe going to be using canoes on rivers in the middle of the Amazon to take aid into the country, and that was something I was going to watch for on Saturday. Here we see this group, evidently members of it, lying down in front of, military vans this morning to try and block the closure of the border and troops open fired on them and one or two people have been killed i mean suffice it to say we're still a day away from the main event here and here's an area where maybe we weren't counting on seeing violence and we're already seeing it which means it's almost hard to predict
0: very very quick one here luke we just have 20 seconds or so Uh, north korea says they're suffering a food shortage is this handing donald trump a bargaining chip uh, it's either telling the Chinese that they should uh, import more, you know, send more food
5: and weaken the U.S. arguments against doing that, or it's trying to give a reason to hold a summit when it doesn't look like there's a good reason for it. I mean, the last thing we've been told is the point of this summit is to determine if they're serious about denuclearization. That was supposed to have already been sorted out. So maybe here is the rationale. If there's no other reason to talk, do it for humanitarian purposes.
0: Or trade food for denuclearization. Maybe. Yeah. It's all on the table. We don't
5: we don't know what's on the table. There
0: you go. Okay, Luke Vargas. Luke, thanks so much. Thank you. Tom Hartman here with you, and uh, on the line with me is Mark Guthel. He is the Kane County Democratic Chairman, Kane Dems. Kane County is near, uh, just outside Chicago uh, in Illinois. Kane Dems, dot org is the website. You can tweet him at Kane Dems. And, Mark, am I, I'm pronouncing your name right, aren't I? It's pronounced Gately. Gately, I'm sorry. But uh, close enough. No, no. Let's do it right, (laughs) Mark Gately. Um, My apologies. So, uh, tell me about the Truman dinner. I I know it's sold out, so this isn't you know just a a, kind of a naked plug for trying to you know do a fundraiser or anything here. But uh, this is the kind of thing that really active, really good Democratic Party uh groups do we we heard earlier from a guy in, in south carolina i think it was or north carolina and he showed up at his local democratic party and there were only four people and they were all like over 70 and they were all totally dispirited and he's like no no we need to make things happen and they're like oh we don't have you know and uh you guys are the are the absolute contrast to that tell us about the Kane county democratic party
1: so the uh, Kane County Democratic Party is about an hour outside of the city of Chicago. We have a half million people who reside in Kane County. Uh, we've been winning elections um, incrementally since 2002. Uh, recently, we just picked up the two congressional seats, which would be um, Lauren Underwood and Sean Casten, uh, which are very important for us for everything that we stand for. Uh, the event is our annual fundraiser that we we host every year to raise money for our candidates. Uh, throughout the, the smaller races, like county board and, and so forth, and we've been successful there as well. So it's a big event for us. Thank you for uh, having me on your show, and thank you so much for coming out and uh, being our keynote speaker.
0: We're talking with Mark Gately. He's the uh, Kane County Democratic Chairman. I have said for years on this program that the most powerful political position in the United States is not the is not the president. It's a precinct committee chair or a precinct committee person, because these are the people who, and in some states it's a paid job, in most states it's a volunteer job, um, and, and in some states just, there are not even people showing up for it, and these are the folks who are selecting the primary candidates or helping select the primary candidates, these are the folks who are helping write the platform. This is where it all starts. Can you reality check me on that? Is that an accurate statement? And, you're, and- you're, per-
1: you're going in the right direction, but a precinct committee person is like more local. So in the state of Illinois, we're governed by county parties. So we have Kane County Democrats DuPage Page County Democrats. Mm-hmm. But on, under that umbrella, for us are the committee people. So then we're broken up in 16 townships, and each township uh, they elect their own chairperson, and then and they're selected by the Precinct committee person. Uh, ultimately, you want to run for precinct committee person because then you elect the the officers such as myself and our executive board. Right. Uh, more importantly, they're the ones who get out to vote for the Democrats. They go knocking on doors, they canvass, they phone bank, they identify our supporters, your registered voters. Um, it's really important, and we're all volunteers. So I I get it when people call the office and they don't get a call right back. But we're all we're all volunteers here. Be patient. We're all on the same team. We want to go in the same direction. We just need to to understand is be patient with everybody in different you know towns and townships and states because um, it's really important.
0: Yeah, and if you live a good,
1: in a good precinct
0: committee, if if them. you live in Kane County, uh, go to canedems.org dot org. Check it out. Toss in your hat. I mean, participate. Get out there. Get active. Yeah. Tag your it right. Are you noticing? More enthusiasm than in previous years. I know that the, you know the, the the last couple of elections have have actually uh, uh, you know it's it's been real interesting how things have changed politically in the United States, uh, particularly since nine eleven. What's the state of the Democratic Party, both locally and nationally, from your point of view as the chairman of the of the Kane County Democrats?
1: Okay, well, start with our like our state party. It's Illinois is pretty solid blue, and then. The Collar counties outside of the city were blue. So, like the elections are decided by voters, and voters were the populace. Is and, and I'm not. I don't mean to say anything about the rest of the state, but the, the large portion of the votes come from the city and outside the, the city uh, into the suburbs, mm-hmm. and that's where we're very active. We're active throughout the state. It's just that from the area that I'm at. Um, I think Trump lost King County by like 16 points. Wow! Um, you guys are doing your job. And Lauren, Lauren, yeah, Lauren won um, her race against the incumbent Republican by six points, and she carried Kane by uh, like seven points. Uh, so she she outperformed, um, then she overperformed because it was a R plus four. Um, She was just a great candidate and everything lined up and we we have a lot of young people coming into the party that are participating. We embrace everybody that wants to get out and help us, you know, canvass and phone bank.
0: So if somebody calls, they go to your website, canedems.org, and and I'm assuming that we can generalize this across pretty much any county democratic party in the United States, correct me if I'm wrong on that too. Somebody goes to Cane Dems, they get your phone number, they get your email address or they whatever, they drop in, they come to a meeting, what's your advice to people about to say what to do how to come in how to be part of you know what's what's you know kind of etiquette
1: yeah just attend the meeting listen be patient people are there they want they want to work with you but sometimes it's hard to get a hold of the party or, or the township but be patient they're there and they want you they need your help We're rolling,
0: man. We're on the move. There you go. Uh, Mark Gately, he is the chairman of the Kane County Democratic Party. Uh, Kane Dems, K-A-N-E, Dems.org is the website. You can tweet him at Kane Dems, K-A-N-E-D-E-M-S. Mark, thanks a lot for dropping by today.
1: Thank you very much.
0: My friends at X-Chair are at it again, constantly tinkering to make an already superior product even better so you can work in even more comfort and be that much more productive. Now you can enhance your X-Chair's performance and protect your floors with incredible X-Wheel blade casters. These urethane wheels are driven by butter-smooth, whisper-quiet ball bearings and are built to last, as if the X-Chair isn't comfortable enough. Now you can add a set of X-Wheels and take your performance to the next level. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and pay as little as $30 a month. Seriously, for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee. You can take your comfort and productivity into the stratosphere by getting yourself an X-Chair. X-Chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com now. That's m.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code TOM for a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com. xchairtom.com. We are, for this next half hour, going to get into one of our conversations with great minds. I'm so glad to have with us Dr. Douglas Rushkoff. He's the founder of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism and a professor of media theory and digital economics at uh, City University New York, Queen's Research Fellow Institute for the Future, author of more than 20 books, including his latest just released, Team Human. Our technologies, markets, and cultural institutions, once forces for human connection and expression, now isolate and repress us. It's time to remake society together, not as individual players, but as the team we actually are. Last time we talked with Douglas uh, was about your book, Present Shock, wasn't it?
6: Yeah, that that was last time, yeah. And I did, ago. Yeah, and that was uh, 2013. 2013, I did yeah. one between that and now called Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. Uh, it sounds that. like a great yeah, book. Yeah, sort of the inequality of the digital economy, and now uh, Team Human. To start with throwing
0: rocks at the Google mm. Bus, these were the buses that Google uses in Silicon Valley to transport their workers around?
6: Yeah, I mean, the whole book wasn't about that, but it kind of served as a starting point that, you know, here's a company that was too... Kids from Stanford, we're going to take down big bad corporate Yahoo by creating a people's algorithm that would let us search the net in a new way from the bottom up. You know, they took too much money and ended up being this really awful extractive behemoth that needs to grow. And people who lived in San Francisco, where the company's operating, you know, watch their real estate prices and their rents go way, way up, you know, to the point where the city's unlivable for them. And uh, the employees who live there, and it was sort of a nice idea that Google thought instead of having them drive back and and forth, we'll create these big air-conditioned Wi-Fi buses that'll transport them back, you know, to and from the mothership. Right. But to people in San Francisco, it felt like sort of a symbol of the alien invasion of here are these people that are using San Francisco as a backdrop and a bedroom community, making it unlivable for real people, while all the capital, all the resources is being sucked out by this uh, big company down in Mountain View. And, you know, it wasn't just that the prices, real estate prices or rents tripled and quadrupled, but if you were in walking distance of one of the Google bus stops, your rent was another 30 percent higher than it was elsewhere. Uh, so people started laying down in front of the buses and saying, you know, gentrification. And and then in Oakland, someone actually threw a rock at one of the Google buses and the sort of a minor riot happened. And people were tweeting at me saying, oh, Doug, aren't you going to cheer on what happened? I like, I can't cheer that on because... You it's know, violence. And I got friends on that bus, you know, yeah. who are just trying to make a living and earn however much they need to earn before they sure. burn out. You know, so I wanted to sort of unwind that and show how we're all responsible for this sort of extractive explosion. Well, and we see this, uh, I mean, not just in San Francisco with Google. You,
0: you, we, saw, we see this not, not necessarily with the bus, but this, this dynamic at work with Amazon in Seattle. Starbucks in Seattle, perhaps? With uh,
6: Uber yeah. in London, maybe? Yeah. Uh, uh, you yeah. know, it depends. It's everywhere. Yeah. yeah. And it's and because of that, that big disconnection. These companies are not serving real people or places. What they're doing is serving shareholders. They, mm. they're, These are all is extractive it, is, is models. There, is there a, it seems like there's
0: an analogy or an
6: analog between
0: that and, for example, how Walmart moves into a community and destroys, on average, 100 local businesses, and they will target those businesses. And,
6: and Absolutely. You know, and I wrote about that, what it takes Walmart, say, 10 or 15 years years to do in a community, where they go in, they undercut all the local sellers, put everyone out of business, so they become not only the sole retailer, but the sole employer in a community. So then they can underpay people or have them on part-time wages. Then all those people who are working at Walmart are also on food stamps <laughs> and on welfare, and, you know, in order and on Medicaid or whatever, to get basic services. So the net effect is a drag. But Walmart's playbook is based on the British East India Company's playbook, the early colonial playbook of which. which of Which we rebelled against with the Boston Tea Party, <laughs> right? And and folks like Adam Smith, who are become the patron saints of libertarianism, were actually the people arguing about the problem oh, of large theory capitalism. of moral sentiments. Right. I
0: mean, he, he wrote an entire book that was basically here's the dangers of capitalism, uh-huh. and the phrase "invisible hand" only appears once in uh, Wealth of Nations, and right. it appears that in that one place in in the context of protective uh, it, tariffs, essentially. I mean, the the, the, the sentence begins. Something like preferring domestic manufacture to that of foreign, you know, bloody 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 invisible exactly. hand bloody you know,
6: which is really the, my pivot to, to this book, to Team Human, was where I was realizing, well, these sort of large abstracted rule sets, you know, that that used to be enforced by law in British East India time or Walmart time, are now being enforced with code. You know, so we're sort of reifying. By, by code, you mean digital Computer code? code. That now we're living on digital landscapes that are just as oppressive as, you know, the stock market or industrialism or the economic uh, operating system that we were using. You know, that Mark Zuckerberg and, and people who are building digital companies are really building them on top of an operating system that they're not even acknowledging. They didn't go to school. They drop out of college at 19 before they've taken economics, before they've taken anthropology. So they don't know that there's another operating system embedded in the platforms they're building. And that operating system is? Corporate capitalism. It's extractive corporate capitalism. How do we use human beings as a profit center for shares? This is digital colonialism. It's exactly digital colonialism. And it's why, and it's interesting, it's why even privileged white males now can experience what it's like to be an indigenous uh, an indigenous population because at least we're indigenous to the real world and now we're seeing this sort of uh, uh, which algorithmic is, invasion which
0: is why you're seeing privil- privileged white males um, voting for Donald Trump when he promises them that he's going to at least give them back the dignity that they had in the 50s, 60s, 70s when, when they had could get a union job without, right. without bringing back the
6: unions. Right. <laughs> right. And what he is speaking to, and this is sort of what I'm trying to speak to also and that we all have to speak to, is that there's an ace, there's it sounds so new agey, but there's an essential dignity to human beings yes. that we are worth more than our utility value. You know, and that, again, it goes back to Marx, and I'm sorry, but, you know, <laughs> the human well, beings. Marx's analysis was, right, was, was spot solid. on. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's that we are more than the inputs and outputs. And the minute that we take on the market's logic as our own, the minute that we only value ourselves in terms of our utility and what we can produce, that's when we've lost. Yeah. So back in the 1960s, guy named Robert Bork,
0: came up with an idea. Back in the 1880s, 1881, 82, whatever it was, the Senator Sherman from Ohio first introduced the what came to be the Sherman Antitrust mm-hmm. Act of 1890. And it was vigorously enforced by Teddy Roosevelt and by Taft after him. And the whole idea of this was that bigness, giant corporations getting too large, controlling markets either vertically or horizontally was a bad thing because it was destructive to communities, which is what you've Mm -hmm. just been talking about. It was destructive to what they would refer to as competition, what today we would call entrepreneurism Mm -hmm. or entrepreneurialism, the ability of small people to start companies to compete with them. It was destructive of families. It was not honoring in many cases, not even honoring the institutions of the company, they were producing vast, vast differences in inequality and wealth, that these were all the evils of monopoly. And that was widely understood in the United States. In the 60s, Bork came along, wrote a paper about this, and said, no, that's all wrong. What Senator Sherman really was talking about, and what we really need to worry about when we enforce antitrust law, is the prices consumers pay. And the only metric that we should use to decide whether we're going to break a company up or forbid a merger is whether or not it's going to lower prices for consumers. And that became a doctrine that was adopted by the U.S. Supreme Court in a a case, I'm forgetting the name, Sullivan is in that name, Mm. in the 1970s. I think it was 77. And it became the policy of the Reagan administration. And we have had no antitrust enforcement since then, that doesn't specifically deal with nothing but is the consumer still getting a cheap price so they don't view walmart as a monopoly for example even if it may be the only store within 100 miles for a town because you still have cheap chinese junk that you can buy at low prices and the only metric they're looking at is the price but not the cost that's right so how do we a if we've accurately diagnosed at least one small piece of the problem How do we wake Americans up to that, and how
6: do we change that? Well, a bunch of ways. I mean, the simplest team human approach would be, how do we help people see themselves as sort of 360-degree human beings rather than just in their roles as consumers? You know, yeah, I'm a consumer sometimes, but I'm a parent, I'm a producer, I'm a worker, I'm a... I'm all these other things. So if I'm understanding my rights in terms of that customer's always right, and that's the way I express myself, well, then look, then we get an American Idol presidential election, of course. Which is what we have. Right, because we've bought into that sensibility. I mean, one cure for that is going to be when people don't have the money to buy stuff anymore. So they're going to have to start looking around. Well, that's what happened in the late 20s, early 30s. And
0: and by the way, that's also what happened in 1846 with the Great Depression then that led to the Civil War. It's what happened in 1770 in the Great Panic 1770 that led led to the Tea Party that led to the American right. Revolution. I mean, it seems that about every 80 years, and and uh, you know, the fourth turning, those guys uh, I'm forgetting their names right now, Howe and Strauss, yeah. uh, you know, wrote about this about how every 80 years we have this you know a collapse followed by a war right. followed by a reboot and and typically a, a major progressive reboot, right? Uh, which I've been kind of hoping for. Yeah, but that
6: reboot's only going to work if people engage with one another rather than their devices. In other words, as things get worse, are we going to retreat into video games and Twitter and bad TV? You know, are we going to have enough money to do that? Or are we going to decide that other people are more interesting? Well, isn't this what Robert Draper was writing
0: about in 2001 or three or whenever he wrote Bowling Alone? Right. If I'm uh, remembering his name. Yeah, correctly.
6: Um, Robert Putnam. Putnam, yeah. that's right. And he was looking at the collapse of civic society's institutions. Yeah. You know, everything from the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts to the Elks Club and, and the asking And asking why,
0: and some of the possible answers were cable TV, people are working too hard, Reaganism has destroyed the middle class, you know, everybody's addicted to their screens. Is there another piece to this?
6: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a lot of it. It's really, we are taking a, a potentially very powerful connecting industry, you know, the internet and right. you were around for the beginning when it was going to hope. Oh, I ran forums on CopyServe yeah, in the 80s Yeah, exactly and it was, you know and we all I mean, a lot of us believed that it was going to be the realization of the kind of the guy in mind You know, this is the way the, the, the humans and the planet would connect up each other's nervous systems and get to experience Oh, and uh, we had
0: extraordinary community in our CopyServe communities but you yeah. were required to use your real name which is a yeah. whole other thing we'll get,
6: And we'll, there was a rule you weren't allowed to do commercial activity online either
0: That's right, yeah. that's right uh, Douglas Ruskoff Dr. Douglas Rushkoff is with us Team Human is his new book It's our convers- Conversations with great minds. This is the Tom Hartman Program. His website, Rush Rushkoff, You can tweet him at Rushkoff. What most people don't realize about working in radio is that it's hungry work. I mean it. And you know, cooking can seem like a chore, but that's where Hello Fresh comes in. They take the guesswork out of cooking by offering a wide-ranging menu, with classics that we know and love, like the gorgeous greens farrow bowl or the delicious grilled sriracha glazed salmon to recipes you might not be as familiar with, courtesy of their gourmet menu. Get fresh and affordable, high-quality ingredients delivered right to your doorstep, pre-measured, so all you have to do is follow the recipe. It could not be easier. That's what makes Hello Fresh America's number one meal kit. For a total of $60 off, that's $20 off your first three boxes, Visit HelloFresh.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. That's HelloFresh.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. Get a total of $60 off. That's $20 off your first three boxes. Visit HelloFresh.com slash Tom. That's HelloFresh.com slash T-H-O-M. HelloFresh.com slash Tom. How unique is this in human history? I called him Draper. You said his name was? Putnam. Putnam, that's right. He was mostly pointing a finger at, number one, people were working longer and harder because of the destruction of unions, and number two, television, cable television, if I'm remembering correctly. Now you're talking about the digital Forces that are tearing us apart. Is this something that's cyclical? Is are there? Yeah,
6: in a way. I mean, it's older. You know, I think that there have been. There's some really old and disparaging notions about human beings and our behavior that we're kind of embedding in our digital infrastructure, and they're not really true. So the idea that evolution was a competition between individuals for the survival of the fittest. Read Darwin. That's, that's not, not what Darwin said. Darwin that's said. what Herbert Spencer said. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's what Spencer did, or Hayek, or, or yeah. someone else. You know, it's not. You know, evolution is actually the story of how species collaborate and cooperate with one another in order to I- ensure mutual survival. To, to assure homeostasis, basically. Right. Uh, you know, you know environmental was, stasis. Right. I was taught in school that the big tree, you know, is is getting all the sun and shades the little one, and the little one will perish, and the big one will live. Turns out that's not true. The big tree is sharing nutrients with the little tree through a network of my Mycelia in the soil, right. which turns out to be alive and not just dirt. Yep. And then, you know, in the winter, when the big tree loses its leaves, the little one's an evergreen, it returns soil, uh, through the soil matrix, some nutrients to the big tree, and the, the mushrooms take a service fee for it. Yeah, you know, exactly. So it's like, well, wait a minute, what's that? That's not the story I was told. And then we learn that, you know, if human beings really are the most advanced species, it's really just to the extent that we can collaborate and communicate. So we develop language and text and all these things to uh, allow for higher levels of coordination. But, you know, really when we take any of these tools, even when we use text, uh, you look at the first use of text and it was uh, to count slaves,
0: It was to keep track of people's slaves. Back 7,000 years ago
6: in Syria. Yeah, when they were, that's what they used it for. You know, you look at um, the printing press, you know, no, people were not allowed to do their own little pamphlets on the thing. You know, the government controlled the printing press and they'd kill you.
0: In fact, it was against the law to be literate if you weren't a Catholic priest. Right. I mean, for, exactly. For quite some so they time.
6: control, you know. So you, we look at these potentially liberating technologies, and we say, "Oh, well, look, you know, the elites end up controlling them." So now we have the internet, and people really have gained the capability of the printing press era. We can write, you know, we can publish, but we can't program. We don't program the environments in which this happens. So you can, you know, write on on Facebook to look hows come home, and all you're really doing is enabling algorithms that are looking to modify and control your behavior.
0: Yeah, this is remarkable stuff. Do you see the essentially the Internet right now as it's been reshaped as a malicious force or as a neutral force or as a positive force?
6: Right now, it's primarily being used as a manipulative force, right? There's a multi-trillion dollar industry looking at how to control human behavior through our devices. Every time you swipe on your smartphone, it gets smarter about you and you get dumber about it. And if you wanna get smarter about it, you're gonna open it up and find all of these black box proprietary algorithms that you're not even allowed to know what they're doing. And when you learn what they're doing, you find out, oh, Facebook is taking my past behavior in order to put me in a statistical bucket and, and predict my future. And predict or we, we modify hit, we're, we're my future. Welcome. I want to say that Chickpea Tinga Taco. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I would just, eat that.
0: Uh, yeah, for, uh, for our commercial stations, I was, just, I was just doing a live read for uh, HelloFresh.com slash Tom. So it's a great organization. I like to say uh, that phrase, Chickpea Tinga Taco. Yeah, and, and we're pleased to have uh, companies uh, that sponsor our program. It keeps us in business.
6: Yeah. Anyway, we're talking I with Doug, We're talking with I Doug, do a podcast, so I mean, We're just begging our, our listeners to give us two bucks a month. Yeah. But, uh, well, yeah. It's, that's Man, a model, too. It works. We're talking to
0: Douglas Rushkoff. His new book is Team Human. And we were just talking uh, during the break about how these things are not altogether new and hyper-simplified version. You know, if you look at European history for the last millennia, Mm. right? There was this long, long period of basically feudalism. And then the Black Death came along, the, the bubonic plague killed off a third of Europe. That created such a labor shortage that wages went up. Middle class emerged essentially as a consequence of this, the first unions in the 1300s, late 1300s. And that produced the Renaissance, right? People could, music, art, literature, uh, nobody had time for that before because everybody was essentially a slave. And then that faded out after about three generations and the kings took over again. And then the printing press came along. And some people say that the printing press is what led us right to the Enlightenment, right to, you know, Rousseau and John Locke. Mm -hmm. And these were disruptive events. I was going to say disruptive technologies, but the bubonic plague was not a technology. Mm -hmm. But these were major disruptive events that had, Historical consequences right. that literally are ringing to this day, and I'm wondering putting it in that kind of a context, in that kind of very large context, in the development of radio in the United in the in the world in the 1920s, the development of television in the 1950s, the development then of the internet in the 1970s and 80s. What does this mean for us? How do we, as a species, deal with these kinds of disruptive cycles? And are they always, do they always end up just accruing to the benefit of the East India companies
6: of the world? Yeah, I mean, if we don't realize what the disruption could do, then they end up not being disruptions. They end up, you know, the, the, the digital revolution is a reactionary movement by Wall Street against the potential for wider distribution of wealth that the that the so? Internet promises. In the early 90s, we used to think of the internet as unleashing the new possibilities for the collective human imagination. Okay. And by the time Wired Magazine came out and said, no, no, the internet is the salvation of the Nasdaq Stock Exchange, that this is an investment opportunity. So we really pivoted the entire internet from connecting people to extracting value from people. We we used it as an extension or an amplification of the attention economy.
0: Absolutely am- amazing. I'm sorry, we're out of time. Douglas, Dr. Douglas Ruskoff is the author of the Rushkoff.com, the website. The new book is Team Human. Thank you so much for for being with us, Douglas. It's great having you in the studio. I do want to toss out another topic that I'm just wondering what you think about. There was a piece in, I, I don't recall if it was the Washington Post or the New York Times, but I think it was the Post, earlier this week or late last week, suggesting that if you don't respond to an email immediately... That's bad manners. This is the age we live in. If you don't respond to an email quickly, or at least in the same day, that's very bad manners. That's a, a naked slap in the face and insult to other people. And for years, I have been slowly, but systematically moving more in the direction of going back to where the way things were when I was, back when I was a youngster, Um, which was, you know, you'd write a letter. Sometimes, you know, it would take me two or three days to write a letter. You know, you write a little bit, you think about it, you write a little bit, you think about it. And then you mail that letter and it takes a couple of days for the letter to get there. Or somebody sends me a letter, I get the letter, I read it, I think about it. I walk around with it for a day or so. I, you know, how am I going to, you know, and what about, and and then you sit down and you write, and you write a response, and and it was a a much slower process, but I think a much more thoughtful one. I look at my email every day. I, I, in fact, several times a day, and I try to respond quickly to things that I think have high levels of immediacy, of urgency associated with them. But there's a difference between what's important and what's urgent. A, A dear friend of mine sent an email a couple of days ago that is important, but not urgent it's, it, it, it doesn't require an immediate response, but it was about some important issues of things that are going on in his life and my life and our families and i 've been thinking about it, wh- how I want to respond to it, and I don 't believe he'll be offended when he gets a response, probably for me this weekend. I, I usually catch up on my correspondence on the weekends. now part of that is just my schedule. I mean you know Louise and I are up in the morning in between four and five every morning putting together the show. We do that until 9 a.m. We go on the air at 9. We're on the air until noon. I go home at noon. I have lunch. And then at 12.30, I sit down and I start writing because, you know, I've, I'm, I'm trying to produce two books a year here. We just finished, actually, Amazon just put up our, our uh, Second Amendment book, The Hidden History of the Second Amendment, of Guns and the Second Amendment. We're doing this series of books, and I'm hoping it'll end up being 10 books. That one is available for pre-order right now on Amazon the next one is going to be the hidden history of the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America and I spent four hours writing on that one yesterday the third book is the hidden history of voting and voter suppression in the United States and that's the book I was writing on yesterday and I'm three chapters into that so anyhow that all this by way of saying that you know my workday starts at 4 o'clock in the morning or four thirty in the morning and typically I stop writing at 6 And then Louise and I watch Rachel Maddow's show. It's become quite informative. And then we go to bed at seven. And there's not a lot of time in there to deal with email and phone calls and all kinds of other stuff because I've got all these commitments. And that's my workday. And I'm not saying that by way of excuse. I know that we're all busy in our own unique ways. And even if I wasn't busy like that, I think I would still be inclined to sit on an email for a day or two if I thought it was a really meaningful one and particularly a long one from a friend. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on these protocols. Now this doesn't just apply to email. I know somebody who gets very very upset if he calls and I don't call back quickly or if I don't take the call. Uh, particularly if he knows that I could take the call. And I, you know, I uh, now I almost always almost always take calls from anybody I recognize. If my phone recognizes the name, I always answer it. Uh, almost always. And sometimes I'm in the middle of something like, a, you know, I'm just in this really juicy paragraph and I've got to get this thing down. And, and, and I just hope they'll leave a voicemail and tell me, was this urgent? Was it important? Was it neither? Was it both? And then I'll call them back. But, uh, you know, with phone calls, there's a, it seems like there's a higher level of urgency. And by the way, if I don't recognize the number, i never answer because there's so many spam calls. And then sort of in between, between the urgency of phone calls and the the slow, gentle process of letters. I have a friend in Washington, D.C., Roger, who literally does not do email. And he mails me letters. And I mail letters back to him. I have a friend in Los Angeles that, that we kind of send things and letters and books back and forth to each other. And I love it. I mean, you know, it's like, and it's slow. And sometimes it'll take, a, you know, well, not a month, but actually, I think in one case it actually did take a month for one of us to respond to the other in an email and then in between that you got text messages and social media and you know some everything from Facebook to to instant messages to text messages and things like that. So what are your practices? Susie in Vaughan, Washington. Hey Susie, what's on your mind?
3: I wanted to weigh in on that email thing. Over ten years ago my husband and I both lost our jobs at the same time and so We were doing our finances, and I said, what can we live without? Well, first to go was TV, second to go was Internet. We just didn't care about what we need on our phones. People can call us or text us if you're important. I'm not that important. You know what I mean? If you want to find me, I'm not hard to find. And I found you, which is weird because we have no, we have radio. So it's, uh, I love it. We love it
0: that way. We're anonymous as much as you can be in this day and age. It feels good. Yeah, well, and thanks for listening on KBCS. So is it bad manners, in your opinion, to wait a few days before you respond to an email? Is there a social obligation to respond immediately?
3: Okay. I have over five thousand emails, is what I'm saying. I don't Yikes. do it. I won't do it. Oh, because so, every once in a while I go just for laughs to see you know what's accumulated, and that's why I'm saying everybody knows my phone number. Everybody knows how to get hold of me if they want me and it's important. I will respond, but so,
0: so I'm wanna, not going to. So, 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 so if you want to talk to Susie, send her a letter or give her or me. give her a call. Or or drop by and knock on the door. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah,
3: Yeah. Oh no! No pop ins. (laughs)
0: <laughs> no pop-ins. Okay, don't don't don't, no don't go over that. yeah, that okay. And that's something that you know that was the for our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation. That was the big debate. Was you know do you make an appointment to visit somebody? Do you, uh, you do you lead a calling card? Do you, you know, how do you work that out? I mean, in the days even before telephones and things, it's interesting how social mores change as a consequence of technology. It's just fascinating. Susie, thank you for the call. Thanks for listening to Katie. Yeah, my tax
3: lady um, said we're like in the wit sex. She said that you did it to yourself, and I said that's
0: right (laughs) yeah there you go Susie. thank you very much we'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the tom hartman program and in the meantime don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport never was intended to be it requires you so get out there get active tag you're it we'll see you tomorrow
5: you've been listening to tom hartman